0: Radio Free Mormon. Here we are. Another episode. I keep saying the same thing every week. i got to come up with a new intro. I gotta no, say I like hearing you to... say it.
1: I like hearing you say, say the same thing over and over. It reminds me of General Conference.
0: <laughs> which, which we will probably mention at some point tonight, at least one of them. Um, I'm excited. You sent the outline earlier in the week, and uh, you prepared this week's uh, Sunday School Gospel Doctrine uh, lesson. And uh, so before I turn it over to you folks... Uh, we're just appreciative of each of you. Grateful for the listeners. There's 117 in here right now watching via YouTube uh, or Facebook or another place. Our YouTube videos, by the way, are getting tons of views. And especially when we put up uh, live content from Mormonism Live or Carrie Shirts, the Backyard Professor, uh, Rami Umptum Ruminations is getting tons of comments as well. It is just fun to see all this positivity going on with the things that we're doing and uh, just excited uh, for for what you've got planned for us tonight rfm so i will turn the time out. we already had the the opening prayer and now i'll turn the time over to you
1: you look like the reverence child i i think i could do that i bet you could do that
0: yeah yeah i, I can have handle some responsibilities
1: Uh, My problem is shutting up long enough to be reverent. That's my problem with that. But (laughs) but tonight's episode is called, Will the Real Real Apostle Please Stand Up? And before we get to that, though, we have some late breaking news. Do you have a special graphic for that? Yes, there it is. Breaking news. I have, within the past hour, been notified by a perspicacious listener to the program that the judge's order in the Gaddy case had finally been issued. It's something we've been waiting on since January of this year. Tonight is August 4th, 2021. So it's been about mm, seven months, I think, if you count it that way. And this order was supposed to come out within the next 45 days after the argument on the hearing. Anyway, you cannot hurry a judge. Judges can hurry lawyers, but lawyers don't get to hurry judges. It's one of those one-way streets that all lawyers know about, and I expect all judges do too. But um, after I was was notified by that, I was able to get in contact with Kate Burning Game, a name to remember because she is the attorney who's representing Laura A. Gaddy individually and on behalf of all others similarly situated. It is a class action lawsuit versus The Corporation of the President of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, this was obviously filed before they changed the the name. Uh, And it proceeds, it's against the church, as we understand. And this order uh, is issued, it's being heard in the United States District Court, District of Utah. It's been assigned to Chief Judge Robert J. Shelby. And um it's a 30-page order i have not been able to read it all i just got this sent to me k burning game was nice enough to send it to me and this was entered one week ago today i believe july 28 2021 i had not heard anything about this and i've been listening and looking and then like i said this uh particular listener with the first name john had uh direct messaged me and said hey it's out do you know about this and so i said no I, i didn't so i fortunately have K. Burning Games phone number. So I texted her and asked about it to which she promptly responded. Who is this? That's the story of my life. <laughs> who is this? So I told her who I was and that I had participated in this rather lengthy uh, interview with John DeLynn, uh back in January of her and about the case. So if you want any more details about the case, go there. But basically, she is representing Laura Gaddy. We'll just call her Gaddy. That's the plaintiff. It's a class action. Gaddy is representing the class against the church and had brought a number of claims against the church relating to really disingenuousness on the part of the church and their teachings about church history related to the Book of Mormon, the translation, the first vision, et cetera, et cetera. And they had brought a motion, excuse me, they had filed a complaint, the alleging numerous problems, and the church with its lawyers uh, filed a motion to dismiss that complaint. And everything in that Original complaint was dismissed by Chief Judge Shelby, even as of last January when we had this uh, interview. And so what Kay Burning Game did was she got leave of the court to file an amended complaint, which was granted, and she filed the amended complaint and alleging uh, new things or old things with different legal theories. Once again, not going to get into details about this. Number one, because I don't remember them all. And number two, because we don't have time. We've got to get to will the real apostle please stand up. But the she filed the amended complaint. The church once again filed its motion to dismiss, which was basically a redo of the original motion to dismiss. Uh, It seemed like they felt pretty confident about it, that uh, the courts in the United States of America were not going to get into the business of determining the truth or falsity of religious beliefs. Based upon the First Amendment protections, et cetera, et cetera, and the news tonight is that all of the claims in the amended petition, in the amended complaint, were dismissed, except for one. And so I, I haven't, uh, like I said, read through this entire thing. But let me just read to you a little bit. It's from page twenty-seven. And maybe at some point we can get a link to this. Um, I'm not exactly sure how I just got it. So I don't know. I don't think Bill even has it. Um, But going down to page 27, um, we get into it talks about the history of the case, um, the original petition, the motion to dismiss, et cetera, Everything I've talked about. And then it goes to on page 25, the Civil Rico complaint is the one that survives, RICO. The court previously dismissed Gaddy's civil RICO complaint. She reasserts the claim in her amended complaint, but includes in the amended claim a new alternative theory of liability. (laughs) Gaddy's new theory is based on statements by church leaders relating to the use of tithing funds, i.e. that the funds would not be used for commercial purposes. Gaddy alleges these statements were false because tithing funds were in fact used for commercial purposes, including the development of the commercial City Creek Mall in Salt Lake City, Utah. Now, I'm going to skip down a little bit where they talk about the different elements of the RICO statute and what has to be alleged. Now to page uh, 27, I'll read just a little bit more. Following the framing in the court's prior order, the issue presented is whether the allegedly false statements circulated through the mails and wires concerning the church's use of tithing implicate a purely secular dispute. Or an ecclesiastical dispute about discipline, faith, internal organization, or ecclesiastical rule, custom, or law. It's those ecclesiastical disputes that are not subject to being uh, figured out by courts. They're not going to weigh in. But is this a purely secular dispute in the context of a religion? And this is what Judge Shelby says it is. And that's why it survives and it doesn't get dismissed um, in spite of the church's motion to have the court do so. He goes on, the doctrine does not apply to purely secular decisions, even when made by churches, and there's quotations there in citations to case law. Indeed, the First Amendment protects utterances which relate to religion, but does not confer the same license for representations based on other sources of belief or verification. The court must therefore determine whether the church's alleged statements were ecclesiastical statements protected by church autonomy or purely secular ones. And then he goes on to hold that the RICO complaint is purely secular. As alleged in the amended complaint, the court concludes Gaddy's third alternative civil RICO theory is based on a secular dispute concerning statements by church leadership about the specific ways tithing once received would in fact be spent. Justice Jackson provided a helpful example in his dissenting Ballard opinion. Uh, No relation to the apostle, I believe, in the context of criminal convictions based on misrepresentations of religious beliefs. There, he distinguished liability for fraud based on religious expression with liability based on the misuse of donations, stating, I do not doubt that religious leaders may be convicted of fraud for making false representations on matters other than faith or experience. As for example, if one represents that funds are being used to construct a church, when in fact they are being used for personal purposes. So there is quoting from another case, which was from a criminal case, uh, where one of the justices named Jackson makes that distinction, right? This example highlights the distinction between the religious teachings behind the principle of tithing and the church's statements to its members about its use of tithing proceeds. Then going down a little bit more page 28 at the bottom, while the statements were made by church officials, the church autonomy doctrine does not apply as a defense. The church has not asserted any other challenge to Gaddy's Rico claim based on this alternative theory of liability. Accordingly, Gaddy's Rico claim based only on this alternative theory survives the church's motion to dismiss. So what the court then says in its conclusion, which I'll read to you real quick, for the reasons explained above, the church's motion to dismiss is granted in part and denied in part. The motion is granted as to Gaddy's claims for common law fraud, breach of the duty of full disclosure, fraud, and in the inducement to enter into an oral contract, fraudulent concealment, violations of the Utah Charitable Solicitations Act, her first and second alternative theories of civil RICO violations, and intentional or reckless infliction of emotional distress. All of those get dismissed. The motion by the church to dismiss the amended complaint is denied as to Gaddy's third alternative civil RICO theory of liability relating to alleged misrepresentations concerning the church's use of tithing. And then it gives a timeline. Once again, this was a week ago. This order was entered after the church heard oral, excuse me, (laughs) after the court, after the court heard oral argument and took this matter under advisement i was going to say
0: the church got rid of that the church got rid of that in 1978.
1: (laughs) oh and took this matter under advisement gaddy filed a motion for leave to file her second amended complaint that motion is denied without prejudice is premature however now that the court has resolved the church's motion to dismiss her amended complaint gaddy may file within 30 days a motion for leave to amend her amended complaint so we'll see where that takes us all that we know is that so far in the district court In Utah, there is now an action against the church for a violation of the RICO statute related to tithing funds and representations made as to how they were being spent versus how they were actually being spent that has survived the church's motion to dismiss. It's alive, it's well, it's thriving, and it's moving forward in the judicial process.
0: Really quick question, which is, let's, let's just, for the sake of argument, let's say they lose the case. In the process of discovery, does that information still become public?
1: Well, it depends. It depends. Because if there's any information that might be considered sensitive by a party, in this case, it would probably be the church, um, they can request from the court a motion um, basically uh, sealing that information and an order forbidding the parties to disclose it to anyone else.
0: Yeah, I'm sure the church isn't going to have a problem with transparency here, right?
1: No, not at all. Not at all. They regularly file and sometimes get approved and granted such motions to seal that information. Yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting. We'll see where this goes.
1: Yes, we will. Are we ready to go on to, let me exit out of that particular screen and go to this screen. Oh, yeah. Will the real apostle please stand up? There we go. Do you have anything else you want to say, Bill, before I launch?
0: No, I'm just, I'm excited. Somebody, a couple of you guys uh, poked in and said that my mic wasn't working right. So we did get that fixed. Thank you very much for pointing that out. Otherwise, RFM, I am going to sit down in the back of the class and uh, just type <laughs> in every once in a while.
1: Okay. Well, if you'll hang on. Just uno momento, por favor. And I'll just clear the landing strip. Which takes us to President Nelson's flight of death. You remember we did a show about that a couple of weeks ago?
0: It's been a little bit of a hit. Uh, there's been TikToks out. There's been memes everywhere. It's been kind of fun to watch uh, as you explored that issue. And uh, and I gave you the assist on that one uh, for that to kind of go viral.
1: And by the way, once again, I wanted to make it clear that this was based largely on research done by uh, persons over at the Discuss Mormonism
0: yeah. message
1: yep. board. Good for them. Um, I always want to say that because number one, it's true. And number two, they deserve the credit. Good job, guys. Especially, what was it? Dr. Moore and Dr. W and some other people. And those are not their real names. But regardless, that's what they post under. So we did that episode a couple of weeks ago. And we saw how what was probably a fairly routine kind of problem in the air in a flight that President Nelson was on on November 11th, 1976, ended up getting elaborated to the point where the plane—the the plane's right engine exploded, there was fire all down the right side of the plane because the fuel was burning, uh, women screaming, not President Nelson, though. No, it was calm.
0: The, the, the women always panicked.
1: He was calm, cool, and collected, baby. But anyway, it got apparently developed into a point where uh, that happened. Then there's a spiral death spin. The left engine goes out and has to be restarted by the pilot right before they hit the ground so we can pull out in the nick of time. And then they make uh, an emergency landing in the farmer's field. Well, it turns out that apparently it didn't happen quite that way. And we talked about that two weeks ago, so I'm not going to go over that in detail again, okay? You can go back there if you want all the details.
0: Two words, precautionary landing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, precautionary landing. Yeah, apparently, according to the CAB report, the Civil Aeronautics Board report, that it was a precautionary landing. They could have gone on to St. George, but you know, let's just stop here in Delta at the airstrip, not the farmer's field, by the way. Okay, so there's this... this um, elaboration that seems to happen with this story by President Nelson. And I was talking with a friend on the phone about 10 days ago. And I was going over the this incident and also the other incidents that President Nelson seems to have had a similar problem with elaborating on stories. No, the problem is he he doesn't seem to have a problem elaborating on stories, mm-hmm. but he does this. And there's a pattern that has developed of four different incidents that I have commented on in different uh, forums, different podcasts. And this is one of the problem is is that um, we have different data sets sort of here, some over here. Um, We've got some like in uh, Radio Free Mormon number 84, you even remember the number last week, remember? Um, The miracle making of President Nelson Where I talk about three of these incidents. And then there was um, the Reluctant Revelation, which I did, I think was number three of uh, Radio Pre-Mormon. And you, you and I, I think, did a, at least one episode together on this issue. There was a President Nelson Jumps the Shark. There's all these different things going on. And what I wanted to do was to try and bring those together and look at them, but look at them from a different point of view, because as I was talking with this friend of mine on the phone. Something occurred to me. Suddenly, I was looking at it from a different point of view. Prior to this, I had been looking at this from the point of view of what does this say about President Nelson? And what does it say about the members of the church who are believing this? And that he's saying these stories with the intent that they be believed and increase faith in the members of the church. Faith, if not in Jesus, at least in him as the president of the church. Um, And then suddenly, I looked at it a different way, and I looked at it from the point of view of the apostles. And it was at that point that suddenly it clicked for me, and it was like a freight train hitting me. It's like Joseph Smith says about, you know, James 1, 5, never before did any passage of scripture come with more power into the heart of man than this did at this time to mine. Well, I had a similar experience. And this is sort of like the parallax view. The parallax view. Have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. Okay, it's a very, very simple thing. It's like a scientific kind of name for a very simple thing that everybody has experienced. And what it is is that, um, well, if you're out and about, or even inside your room, if you've got something in the foreground, right? And let's say it's a telephone pole, not that I have a telephone pole in here, but outside telephone pole, and then you've got some stuff in the background, right? Like maybe trees or whatever, fields, fences, anything we have a world full of things that are closer to us and things that are further away from us. And if you're looking at that telephone pole, it has a certain position in relation to whatever's behind it. Simple, right? But if we move to the side, all of a sudden we have a different angle on the telephone pole. And the telephone pole hasn't changed. And whatever's behind it, the trees behind it or the fence behind it hasn't changed, right? we've changed and suddenly now we see the telephone pole in a different place in relation to whatever's behind it does that part make sense to you bill it's very simple and i hope i'm not overcomplicating it
0: yeah yeah because of the distance that things are at when you change your perspective a little bit they change uh different from each other
1: right and back when i was in a bishopric many many years ago by the way i'll tell you the story real quick Um, Being the second counselor in a bishopric in a very small ward is the highest that Radio Free Mormon ever got in church leadership. And it wasn't for the full five years either. It was just for like maybe a couple of years before finally it got dissolved and it got kicked out. I think that when I was called our bishops, powers of discernment were were failing him at the time. But so I'm just the second counselor. We've got a first counselor and I cannot remember his name, but he was a sweet guy. Very, very nice guy somewhat older. And by that, I mean my age now. And he was married to this very, very nice lady who was the primary president and they were from West Virginia and they missed West Virginia. They missed West Virginia. And finally the time came when they were going to move back to West Virginia. Mm. And so I'm going to make this announcement because as it happens, it falls to me to be conducting sacrament meeting this particular month. Right? So I make the announcement and I say that brother so-and so and you know his wife are going to be um, unfortunately and sadly you know leaving us and moving back to West Virginia and then I said, yes that's right the um I, say, I said yes, that's right a member of the bishop once again a member of the bishopric is running off with the primary president <laughs>
0: I think that happened a few times in my ward's history, too.
1: Well, I think everybody knows the joke because everybody was just dying laughing over that. I thought we we're going to have to maybe cancel sacrament meeting because was it, was, it was well received. Yeah. And uh, but he was very interested in this parallax view. And I don't know why exactly, but he would frequently more than once. This is why I remember it. He would stand at the, the lectern, right? and on the podium and he would talk to the congregation. It's a ward chapel, right? You know, they got a clock up there on the side wall. And he talks to the uh, the audience and he says, you know, if you look at that clock there on the wall from where you're located, it's gonna look like that minute hand is straight up. Like it's nine o'clock in the morning or one o'clock in the afternoon or whatever it was. And he says, but when you're standing where I am off at this angle and looking at the same clock, it looks like it's maybe two or three minutes before the hour. And he said, that's the parallax view. I can't remember his ever elaborating upon it to make a point, but it was something that interested him very much. So this is the, the parallax view. Everything's the same, but it just depends upon the angle that you're looking at it. And sometimes it's meh. Other times, boom. Something hit you that had not hit you before. And that's what happened with me. Okay. Going back to all of this stuff. There's a parallax view. We're talking about the miracle making of president Nelson. We have documented many of his embellishments and I've talked about from the point of view of the apostles. So let me go down here to president Nelson's stories. Once again, episode 84. First, And once again, I'm not going to go into detail on these, but it's important that we collect all these together in one place so that we have them in one place. And then we're going to do that parallax view thing. All right. First is the story of the incident at Mozambique. If you want the details, go to episode 84, Radio Free Mormon, President Nelson's uh, The Miracle Making of President Nelson. I cover all three of these there. But the first is the story of the incident at Mozambique where he and Wendy, so it's a relatively recent story, right? um are in africa in mozambique visiting the mission home mission president the mission president's wife apparently there's a couple of other people there they're having dinner and then who should walk in but a bunch of robbers and they do some kind of quick robbery and the wife of the mission president whose first name was cindy i believe she ends up being the hero of the story she runs outside somehow she gets a broken arm but she runs outside with a broken arm and she calls for help and the robbers split. OK, that was the, the initial story. And since that time, uh, both Wendy Nelson, as well as President Nelson, have repeated that story in different venues. And it keeps getting more elaborate and more miraculous to the point where um, now. Oh, by the way, it was originally reported in the news and the church news, I think. That, uh, you know, except for Sandy's broken arm, everybody's okay. And President Nelson and Wendy are going to continue with their tour and whatever it was they were doing in Africa. It's not going to stop them from it. But other than that, everything's okay. So over different iterations, the story now becomes to where President Nelson and Wendy are there. These robbers come in. They announce their plans. And they announce their plans. And their plans are that they are going to kidnap Wendy and they're going to kill President Nelson. Because this is what all polite robbers do in Mozambique. First off, they have very good English. So they come in and they announce, the, they announce their intentions of what they're going to do. Now, it's not clear why it is that if they're going to kidnap Wendy, why they're going to kill the guy who presumably would be paying the ransom. Not very well thought out. But this is what it becomes. And then President Nelson adds the detail that all of a sudden now there's a gun that is in one of these robbers' hands that uh, the robber puts to President Nelson's head and pulls the trigger. Instead of going, boom, it goes click. And President Nelson's life is miraculously preserved. I think there's another iteration that's come up since then where President Nelson gets kicked in the face as well. And it ends up being written in one of his stories where this is an illustration of how angels protected him during this. So you can see how it kind of, Uh, ordinary pedestrian kind of robbery in Mozambique ends up becoming elaborated over time with the goal, or at least with the result that it elevates President Nelson and his righteousness, which is what all these stories tend to do. They all tend to get elaborated and they tend to get elaborated in the same way to elevate President Nelson, his righteousness and become an illustration of it and of God's favor of him, protection of him which all goes into this righteousness kind of idea. Then the second story was the story of the lady in the hat. Do you remember that story? By the way, these are names I gave them because they sound like Sherlock Holmes adventure stories.
0: Yeah, the lady in the hat's a good one because it becomes obvious that it is misrepresented by what happened uh, at the end of the conclusion of that story. And by the way, as you tell it, it should be noted that the daughter or granddaughter, I think it's a granddaughter maybe of of the woman in the hat, the granddaughter has been public on multiple occasions including TikTok recently where she goes into detail about how that story is falsely portrayed and that's the reason it was pulled
1: right the whole deal is that um well this is somebody that president nelson had met and given a book of mormon to back in the 1950s all right and he gets a few of the details wrong there's a lady who he originally thinks is a nurse. It turns out she wasn't a nurse in Korea at a mass unit where he was working in 1951. And uh, her husband was a doctor there, too. And he gives a Book of Mormon. Anyway, like I say, I don't want to go into all those details. He gets those details wrong. She actually ne- was never in Korea. She wasn't a nurse. She worked, at, I think, at the Walter Reed Veterans Hospital in Washington, D.C. I think I'm getting the name right. But she was not a nurse. She uh, a staff of some sort. And her husband was a doctor. There was a book of Mormon involved. They did end up getting baptized. Okay. And these are the kind of details that, you know, people will get wrong after decades and maybe not even decades. Um, So I don't find anything particularly uh, nefarious or unusual about that part. The part of the story that had to be retracted was where he said that in the 1980s, I'm pretty sure it was the 1980s. So much more recently. Um, he was at a conference president nelson was attending a conference and i think it was in knoxville tennessee and he goes there and there's a lady who's sitting in the audience now of course it's packed because they've got a general authority there and i think he had just become a an apostle so there's a a lady in the audience and it's like he's leaning over to the stake president saying you know who that lady is with a hat and no i don't know who that is anyway So for whatever reason, then he's up there talking now in front of this huge audience and on a whim or inspiration, he calls on the lady wearing the hat to come up and she comes up in front of everybody and he says to her, he says, um, Oh, what does he say to her? He asks her a question. He says, uh, um, how many people? Have you baptized into the church? Is that what he asked? I might be getting the details wrong, but he asked her a question and she says, well, don't you remember me? And he says, no, I'm sorry. I don't. And she says, well, I'm Beverly Ashcraft. I'm this nurse who wasn't a nurse back in Korea that you gave the Book of Mormon to blah, blah, blah. And President Nelson is astonished because her husband at the time had since uh, passed away. She'd remarried. She has a different last name. So he was astonished and this is happening live in front of all these people. And so then he asked her, he says, well, how many people have you baptized? Have you brought into the church? Which is kind of a way of also saying, how many people have I brought into the church? Since I brought you into the church, everybody you bring into the church is a result of me. How many people have you brought in the church? She said, "I'm, I'm shocked that you would ask that because I had a dream a couple of nights ago that I was going to come to this conference and I was going to be asked that question. So I wrote down a list of everybody that I brought into the church ever since I was baptized back in 1950s by you. And here it is. So this is a wonderful story. It's amazing. It's miraculous. The only problem is it didn't happen. Okay. And there was a conference. They both were there, although they both knew that they were going to be there. None of the other stuff happened. And in fact, uh, Beverly Ashcraft, according to her daughter and granddaughter, who both raised the alarm, said, uh, and our mom has never worn a hat, by the way. Okay, so this whole story falls apart. And the way this came about is that this is early 2019. The biography of uh, President Nelson is going to be out. The one written by Sherry Du is going to be out shortly in 2019 and over at um, LDS Living, I think it is. They publish an excerpt because they're trying to promote the book and the excerpt they publish is this story that's in the book and the daughter of Beverly, who's still around the daughter and the granddaughter. So these, these, the granddaughters an adult as well, they contact Deseret book about the situation and saying, look, this didn't happen. We were there. <laughs> we were there so we saw it not happen. And their their main concern was putting their their mom and grandmother Beverly in a difficult position because she loves President Nelson and she doesn't want to be the kids don't want the mom to be put in the position of having people in the ward and the stake read this story and come up to her and say oh my gosh what an incredible story and put Beverly in the position of having to correct them, right? So they, they say this didn't happen and we'd appreciate it if you took this into consideration. Whatever happened between the communications, I'm not sure. All I know is that Deseret pulled the entire story out of the book. It had already started publishing, but they went back. They took the story. They just took it out. They didn't try and correct it. It's too late in the game for that. So they took the whole story out of the book and then they published it without the story and then they sent it out. Let's so, be
0: honest, though. If they correct the story, there's nothing special about the story.
1: Right. It's kind of like um, Elder Oaks, best missionary not Elder Oaks, Elder Holland's best missionary story of all time.
0: Yeah. Once you take out uh, the likelihood of it not being true, then there's no miracle left.
1: Right. Everything in the miracle story really happened except for all the miraculous stuff. Right. So there was that story. By the way, this is the same biography that unfortunately has the story in it about the flight of death. And way too late to be pulling that story or changing that because that ship has sailed to mix my metaphors. But all of these are problematic enough. And what they evince is a pattern that President Nelson has, because I want to give people, including President Nelson, the benefit of the doubt. People can make mistakes with their memory. But when you start having a pattern of things and of embellishments that all seem to go one direction, (laughs) you know what I mean? And even have a story that has to be yanked from your your biography uh, because witnesses came forward and said it didn't happen that way then we have something that we have to look at more closely, I think. So all of these are problematic enough, but the one story that is the nail in the coffin is remember the title of this is will the real apostle please stand up is the fourth story, the story of the revelation that wasn't Mm. that's a new title. I just made up for it. The
0: The revelation that wasn't
1: the revelation that wasn't the other day upon the stair, I saw a man who wasn't there. And that's the same thing with this revelation. So this is what I call the reluctant revelation back in episode three and president Nelson jumping the shark, et cetera. But here's what happens. Okay. And this is where I'm starting to look at this from the point of view of the apostles. Now let's be really quick about this. Since most people know this 2015, remember, remember the 5th of November, 2015, not only Guy Fawkes day, but also the day on which this policy of exclusion was leaked. And remember that it was never published. It was never promulgated by the church. It was inserted into the manual, the secret handbook by the dead of night, the one that's not accessible except for leaders. And then it was leaked a couple of days later on November 5th. And that caused a huge stir. And you remember that, of course. Mm -hmm. And it was so bad that the church waited actually the very next night, so that's the 5th of November, Thursday, 2015, the very next night on Friday, the 6th of November. The church throws together this impromptu, though very well scripted interview. And D. Todd Christopherson was the guy who got uh, the short straw on that. He's the one who got to be interviewed by the church uh, spokesman at the time. I forget his name. He's the English fellow. Do you remember him? Uh,
0: he is the head of public affairs, I think, for the church.
1: Yeah, I think he used to be. But anyway, yeah, yeah, time. But anyway, so the thing is, this is that in the the policy itself, there's nothing said about revelation. It's just the policy that's stuck in there. When D Todd Christopherson is interviewed for quite a lengthy period of time, there's no mention of revelation for the policy or this being um, a revealed policy. Then a week goes by and now it's Friday, Jan- uh, November 13th, Friday, the 13th of November 2015 and things have not died down. And so now a first presidency letter is issued signed by Thomas S. Monson and um, let's see, President Iring and President Uchtdorf. And in it, What they do is they affirm the fact that this really is the church's doctrine. There's all these people out there saying this can't be, you know, this has got to be made up. Somebody's got to have hacked the church website or whatever. So uh, but they affirm that it is the church doctrine, although they make a couple of clarifications, which is really modifications of the church policy. And we don't need to go into that either. But the main part for purposes of tonight's discussion is there's no mention of revelation in the first presidency. Letter signed by Thomas S. Swanson and the other two. It's simply saying, yeah, this is the the new policy. And here's a couple of clarifications, modifications, changes to it, which were really in response to questions that had been raised in the intervening week. So things keep going on. This doesn't die down. There's mass resignations out on Temple Square, as you'll recall, Bill. Mm -hmm. And then in January of 2016, so two months later, All of a sudden, Russell M. Nelson, who is the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles at the time, goes to Hawaii, BYU-Hawaii, and does a devotional along with his wife, Wendy. And in the devotional, for the very first time, this policy is claimed to be revelation from God by President Nelson. He was president at the time, just president of the Quorum of the Twelve, not president of the church. Do you have that clip? Because I want to listen to that once again, as he claims this to be revelation, because this is going to be very important. So listen closely.
2: And again, with the recent additions to the church's handbook, consequent to the legalization of same-sex marriage in some countries, filled with compassion for all, and especially for the children, We wrestled at length to understand the Lord's will in this matter. Ever mindful of God's plan of salvation and of His hope for eternal life for each of His children, we considered countless permutations and combinations of possible scenarios that could arise. We met repeatedly in the temple in fasting and prayer and sought further direction and inspiration. And then, when the Lord inspired His prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, to declare the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord, each of us during that sacred moment felt a spiritual confirmation. It was our privilege as apostles to sustain what had been revealed to President Monson Revelation from the Lord to his servants is a sacred process, and so is your privilege of receiving personal revelation. My dear,
1: okay, that's plenty. So there's the language that he uses. And when I heard that, I was surprised for the obvious reason. He's claiming this is revelation because a lot of people have been thinking, well, it's just policy. And policy is easier to back down from than something is revelation. It's not been called a revelation. Oops, it's January 2016. President Nelson uses the R word. And now people figure it's going to be tougher to back off of. Um, at the time, even at the time when I was podcasting about this, I asked the question, I said, okay, that's January. April is coming up, April General Conference, and I wondered out loud whether any of the other apostles would come forward to corroborate President Nelson's story because he hasn't just made this something that happened off in the woods by himself, and I'm not, I wasn't actually even trying to think about Joseph Smith there. That just sort of happened. But he has put the other apostles at the scene of the crime. And so, you know, as a defense attorney, when people come to me and they're accused of something and they say, no, that's not the way it happened. It happened this way. The first question I have is, well, are there any witnesses? A lot of times there aren't, sometimes there are. And then we start pursuing that because that's the obvious line of inquiry, right? We go to the witnesses, find out, well, what did you see? What happened? And none of the apostles in April, 2016 general conference said one word about this it was entirely crickets so i thought well that's interesting too so president nelson has put all of these apostles not only at the scene where this happens where they see the spirit move upon president monson whatever exactly this means and uh the mind of the lord and the will of the lord he's declaring and it's our privilege to uh, sustain this he also puts them together at least by implication I start noticing a little wordsmithing on his part as I'm listening to it this time. But by implication, direct implication, he's talking about meeting numerous times in the temple in a spirit of prayer and fasting and considering every permutation, the countless permutations and possible combinations. Right. So finally, after this lengthy process, we get the revelation. He calls it revelation. Okay. so having said all of that, this is January of 2016. And I'm gonna suggest to you right now that the apostles did not corroborate his story because the apostles knew that his story was not true. Now that may sound uh, outlandish, but after going over the other three stories by President Nelson, it, it just fits the pattern. But there's really not a whole lot of evidence to support it except for the fact that nobody else is talking about Revelation except for President Nelson. I mean, this was a remarkable time in church history where, um, you know, revelations have been claimed by presidents of the church from Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, et cetera. uh, Spencer Kimball, you know, different presidents of the church have claimed to receive revelation, including president, you know, Nelson, he's getting them hand over fist now. But as far as I know, this was the first time in church history where a revelation was claimed to be received and it was claimed not by the president of the church, who ostensibly and allegedly actually received it, or even his two counselors. This claim was being made by somebody in the quorum of the 12 on behalf of the president of the church. And it's the such a
0: strange, right. it's such a strange thing, right? And and just FYI, my source at the time inside the church, and I'm not I'm not bullcrapping here, and I'm not this isn't a joke. Um, I was told that at the time this was going on president Monson's dementia was bad enough that every day they would put him in a room and give him root beer floats. And he would watch what about Bob over and over again? Cause that was his favorite show. And I know that sounds like a joke. He's watching what about Bob he's eating root beer floats, but that as far as I know, allegedly, but as far as I know, that's the true story.
1: Well, all I can say is baby steps down the street. <laughs> <laughs> now you okay. need a float. Yes, absolutely. So, Uh, So keep your eye on this point in time of January of 2016, because, of course, three and a half months after the policy was put in the manual and then leaked the backlash from it was so great that God needed to give another revelation to President Nelson. This time he's the president of the church to reverse the policy. Right. And we know that happened in April of 2019. I think it was. And we did episodes on that as well. So they reversed the policy and it was at that time period that Mormon land, which is the podcast that's done by the Salt Lake Tribune about subjects relating to Mormonism had Greg Prince on and he was being interviewed and it was in that interview, by the way, Greg Prince, if you don't know him, I cannot think of anybody who would be more credible than Greg Prince on any subject that he is going to talk about. I mean, if he says something happened, you can probably take that to the bank that it happened. And what he says is let, let me back up and just give you the the nubbin of it is that actually two days before the policy was leaked. So that's November 5th, right? So two days before on Tuesday, November 3rd, same week, D Todd Christofferson goes to a meeting with the other apostles, first presidency, blah, blah, blah. And According to D. Todd Christofferson, he had never seen or heard about this policy before. According to him, there are no uh, frequent weekly meetings in the temple in the spirit of fasting and prayer with all the other apostles trying to work through all the possible uh, permutations and countless combinations and how to figure this out. And there was no seeing any spirit moving upon President Monson and all the apostles then, you know, say, okay, well, this is this is definitely revelation we will sustain this and then we'll, we'll sneak it into the the handbook under the the black of night, because that's what we do with all revelations from God. No, instead, according to Greg Prince, D Todd Christopherson says that never heard about it before. Didn't see it before that morning. And it was presented to the quorum of the 12 apostles for an up or down vote without debate. Now, let me give the details on the source of that, because uh, I think everybody knows that D. Todd Christofferson has a brother whose name is Tom, right, Bill? Yep. Tom Christofferson. Tom's gay. Mm -hmm. And the reason I bring that up is because, obviously, this policy exclusion had a definite impact on gay people. That's what the whole thing was about. And. And what happened is that I think it was that weekend we have the clip here. Uh, The weekend after, so this is just a few days after, Greg Prince is talking with Tom Christofferson about this. And Tom, you know, he was blown away when this got leaked, maybe as much so or more so than anybody else.
3: Mm.
1: If you can imagine uh, being a gay member of the church and having this policy leaked and exploded and his brother is involved. So he calls his brother d todd christopherson the apostle ask him what is up with this and it's then that d todd christopherson tells this account that i just portrayed to his brother tom who then relays it to greg prince and greg prince tells about it on the air do we have that clip we do so give me a
0: second here so this evening so this now is thursday
1: evening
3: He said he had spoken to his brother Todd earlier and that Todd had told him that Tuesday morning was the first that he had known about this policy and that it was presented to the 12 as an up or down vote without debate. Also, he said public affairs had been caught flat footed that they had not learned about it until the morning of the evening when we had dinner, Thursday morning. That's not the way that this church normally functions. Major policies are vetted sometimes for years until a consensus develops,
2: and then correlation
3: and public affairs weigh in. It's an impressive, finely tuned machine under normal circumstances. These were not normal circumstances.
1: Good enough. So we heard it there. Now, here's what I'm going to suggest. First off, I am going to be very likely to believe what it is that's recounted by Greg Prince via Tom Christofferson, which was actually that very night, as it turned out. It's not even the weekend after the Thursday. It's Thursday night of November 5th. And here's the deal. If D. Todd Christopherson has never heard of this policy before the Tuesday, November 3rd, when it's presented for an up or down vote without debate, I'm going to guess that D. Todd Christopherson is not the only one in that position.
0: Yeah. And in fact, RFM, I can add at least a story, which is that I have talked to uh, at least, uh, I think it was two people, but there might be a third. I know of at least two people who directly had contact with Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, who was uh, not around when this all happened. He was out wherever brazil dedicating a mission or whatever he was doing and when he got back and found out they had done this without uh him having a say and being able to communicate about it and talk about all the permutations uh elder holland uh by both people's account was irate got back to his office and took things in the office and threw them across the room, like, you know, just having one of his temper tantrums, he was, he was taffy pulling or something, but he had a temper tantrum and uh, was throwing things around the room. Now I get it. You're one of the 12 and some of your peers make executive decisions without you. And that's not the way the church works. I'd probably be a little pissed off too.
1: Okay. So here's what I'm guessing. I'm guessing that basically the majority, if not all of the 12 apostles, with the exception of president Nelson, who was the president of the quorum of the 12. So he was number one among 12, right. Mm-hmm. Were caught flat footed by this, the same way that D Todd Christofferson and possibly elder Holland were, that they were not part of multiple meetings in the temple meeting, in the spirit of prayer and fasting, uh, trying to consider every possible permutation as related by president Nelson in January of 2016 that they were not there at seeing the spirit of the Lord move upon president Monson between episodes of what about Bob, that this is the mind of the Lord and the will of the Lord. And we're privileged to sustain it as such. So taking that information that we know now from 2019 and going back to January of 2016, you're an apostle. Okay. You're one of the guys that President Nelson has put at the scene of the crime when he's describing this. You're one of the guys who's not going to come forward and corroborate it. But if you're one of the apostles hearing him tell this story, what is going through your mind, Bill? Um, If if
0: I'm not part, you're saying if I'm not part of the decision?
1: Yeah, what's going through your mind if you're D. Todd Christopherson?
0: Yeah, if I'm D. Todd Christopherson or I'm Elder Holland and I'm unaware of what this was going on whether the church is what it claims to be or not, whether these guys are deeply unhealthy human beings or not. The reality is if we are all supposed to jointly be unified and make unified decisions, then I sure as hell don't want to be caught flat footed and you guys do something over there. And I didn't know what the hell was going on.
1: Right. And I'm, I'm actually going for something a little more basic even than that. Um, what I'm going through, going for is this. All the apostles know that President Nelson is making up a story.
0: Yeah, because we all know, every one of those guys knows that Thomas S. Monson has dementia. They know that he is, they've already taken executive power away from him. They're not letting him make decisions. He's eating root, he's drinking root beer floats and he's watching What About Bob. We're not letting him do anything other than read a teleprompter. And so to have something happen, you know it's not Monson who did it. You know that there are other people who, who have gone behind your back, who have implemented this without you being spoken to.
1: Right. And if you know that you didn't know anything about it until the Tuesday before the leak and it's presented to the apostles for an up or down vote without debate, you know that president Nelson's story about all these multiple meetings in the temple in the spirit of prayer and fasting is malarkey.
0: Doesn't it sound like essentially Nelson and Oaks, whoever. And again, I know we're getting into kind of the side of conspiracy theory, but I can't make sense of it any other way. To me, it seems the most rational conclusion based on the data is that elder oaks and president nelson walk into monson's office and simply try to get him to sign off on something and in his state of dementia he trusts whatever they're saying and he puts his pen to the paper
1: yeah it's like radar radar o'reilly with colonel blake and mash
0: yeah which sounds like a hostile takeover right these aren't even the members of the first
1: presidency no but they're the ones with the in so anyway, going away from the part that we we don't know and don't have a way of knowing at this point as to who was involved, and going back to what we, I think that we have a pretty good reason for believing, which is that all the apostles who were not involved in this, and that was the majority of them, including D Todd Christofferson, know in January 2016 that President Nelson is fabricating. He's making up a story, and this is not just any story, okay. Because two years later, President Monson's gonna die. And guess who's up in the batter's box? Who's on deck? That's gonna be Russell M. Nelson. He's yeah. the next guy in line because he's, he's the oldest uh what consecutively serving apostle. Yeah. So he's the next one. Everything in tradition of the LDS Church says he's gonna be the next president, but it's not ironclad. It's not ironclad. There's still an option, right? There's still this, uh, uh, at least um, uh, a veneer of selection that goes on. There has to be a selection. The apostles have to agree. They have to lay their hands on him and uh, what I they lay their hands on and call him or anoint yeah. him or whatever it is. I wasn't invited to become the president of the church and the president of the church who's now Nelson uh, calls his two counselors, right? And then something happens with them for them to be put in that position, but do you think
0: they use virgin olive oil for that do you think they do they do they put some oil directly on the on the cap of the head and
1: it could it could be triple virgin <laughs> triple, triple what uh isn't okay. that an expression am i getting that wrong i don't know oh, my I, olive oil too well i don't i don't well.
0: know i just know there's extra extra virgin olive oil i don't know about triple virgin that almost sounds like uh an islamic terrorist thing i don't know
1: Oh my gosh! We're gonna get our podcast bombed.
0: One unhealthy, a high demand fundamentalist religion to another.
1: Yeah. Oh gosh. Okay. So now it's it's January 2018. President Monson dies, and every single one of those apostles knows something about the guy who's next in line, Russell M. Nelson, who the guy who, by church tradition, is going to become the next president. They know that he fabricates. Revelations. We all understand that church leaders are not perfect. We all understand that they make mistakes, okay? But we're not talking about, do you like Diet Coke more than you like Diet Pepsi? We're talking about whether you can be trusted to represent to the church that you have actually received a revelation. You see, this seems to me to be at the top of the job description of the prophet of God. There, You got one job. Right? You've got one job and that's to receive revelation. And if you're going to say that you receive revelation and we, as this group of apostles know that you can't be trusted on it because you made this up, you put us at the scene of the crime and we know we weren't there. So we know you're faking. Then the question has to arise. Should this gentleman, Russell M. Nelson now become the president of the church and the prophet of God to the entire earth? Should he be the one who holds the keys to receiving revelation and proclaiming those revelations to everybody else? So this is what happens in January of 2018. I wasn't there, but you bet this was going on. You bet this was going on. And now each one of those apostles is in a position where they have to make a choice. Bill, how old are you? 42. Okay. I'm 61. I got you beat. But uh, I think everybody who's lived a certain period on this earth, man or woman. Sometimes, you know, it'll happen when you're a kid. There are a cluster of times in your life when circumstances combine in such a way that you are put into a position where you got to make a decision. And your decision is very stark. And the decision is, do I do the right thing? What I know is the right thing which usually involves speaking the truth or making a hard decision, even though you know that that hard decision is going to have negative consequences that come back on you for doing it, or are you going to go along with the crowd and not say anything in order to avoid the negative consequences? Yeah. And I've had it. I mean, uh, everybody's had experiences like that. I'll just speak for myself. There are times when I have gone along with the crowd because I didn't want to deal with the, the negative. And frankly, I didn't have any negative stuff blow back on me, but I felt like a piece of stuff afterward. Right. Cause I didn't stand up for what I knew was right. Right. But there are other times when I actually have stood up for what I thought was right, which is how I got fired from the prosecutor's office back in 1998. And we'll talk about that sometime if anybody's interested. It has very little to do with Mormonism, but it does apply here because there was a situation where I was put into this position. I didn't ask for it. I didn't want it. Believe me, but I knew something about what the elected official was doing behind closed doors, and it ended up being brought to light. And some the reporter comes to me and asks me about it. I'm just going, "Oh my gosh, do I tell the truth? Because I'm going to get negative ramifications." And I did ultimately getting fired. And, or do I just say, uh, no comment? Do I just go along to get along and, you know, no problem? Well, this is what happened with each one of the apostles in January of 2018. And the result is that none of them said anything. Yeah. And let
0: me add here, let me jump in for a moment, which is that doesn't, you know, For 15 guys, first presidency set of three, you've got the the quorum of the 12, and let's be honest, there's probably a clerk or two in the room too. Somebody acts as the executive secretary and takes the notes for them. And so there are more men in the room than even 15, uh, at least in terms of these kinds of conversations, maybe separate meetings and the three are talking here and the 12 are talking there. But if everybody knows about what's going on, they're talking about the permutations and You know, and and now we learn like that didn't happen. And why doesn't somebody stand up and say something and speak out and go, hey, those meetings never occurred. We never had this discussion. We never talked about those permutations. Folks like Jared, who's who finally showed up late, folks like Jared are going to argue like, guys, we just don't have anybody other than, you know, this fourth hand account that uh, that, you know, Greg Prince is saying third hand account that Greg Prince is speaking up to Fabrizio. But all of it makes sense when you understand this, RFM. And I just uh, was given this this morning. I had known about this, but I didn't know where to find it. The Apostolic Charge. Hubie Brown. Yeah. In his memoirs, An An Abundant Abundant Life. Life, Elder Hubie Brown explained, and this is Hubie Brown, an apostle of the Lord speaking, quote, the Apostolic Charge that every apostle is apparently given upon admittance to the quorum of the 12. It reads as follows. So quote, unquote, the apostolic charge. Then the text is put in by the person that every apostle is apparently given upon admittance to the quorum of the 12. It reads as follows. Now these are Hubie Brown's words, quote, always be willing to subjugate his own thoughts and accept the majority opinion, not only to vote for it, but to act as though it were his own original opinion after it has been approved by the majority of the council of the 12 and the first presidency unquote. Let me just say that again. And then let me speak for a moment, which is always be willing to subjugate his own thoughts and accept the majority opinion, not only to vote for it, but to act as though it were his own original opinion after it has been approved by the majority of the council of the 12 in the first presidency. So think of it this way. You're in a room, 15 men. You're having a conversation. Everybody is free to give their opinion, up or down, criticism, complaint, context, whatever they do. Regardless of how many people are in the nay on an issue, once the majority is reached, everyone in that room has agreed beforehand they will automatically go along with the majority. And beyond that, they will walk out of that room. Their rhetoric and their language will be that they too were for that decision. In other words, it is going to be extremely difficult to ever get a member of the 15 To acknowledge that they were in disagreement over anything that actually transpires in the church because they have made this oath, this apostolic charge, that they will always, once the consensus is agreed upon, pretend that that was their agreement as well and walk out of the room with their rhetoric um, indicating such also.
1: You're muted. I am. I was just saying, right, right. And so we don't know what happened behind the scenes. We don't know if anybody raised any kind of objection. Imagine the spine you would have to have in order to raise an objection on this basis to president Nelson's face. But if you go back and play the press conference where his, the announcement of his ascendancy to being president occurred back in January, of 2018, you will once again notice that uh, Dieter Uchtdorf is sitting extremely, he looks very, very unhappy. He's not smiling. He's not looking over fondly at President Nelson. He's not looking over at all. And maybe, maybe it has something to do with more than just the fact that he was demoted out of the first presidency and into the quorum of the 12 apostles. I don't know. All I know is that Nobody did anything. Nobody said anything. It went forward without a hitch. And the problem in situations like this is if you've got a person who really thinks this is a problem and it's really gnawing at them, because, you know, between 12 guys, some people it's going to strike harder than others, right? Some it's going to bother more. Some it's not, some probably won't even care, but if it bothers you more then you are the greater coward, for not bringing it up and for not announcing it and for not registering your vote in opposition. And so I was talking with this friend, as I said, we're at the top of the show uh, about this whole thing. And all of a sudden I looked at this from the apostles position and I was immediately flooded with this huge feeling of disappointment for each and every one of the apostles who went along with this who went along with making a man who they know prevaricates about receiving revelation to make him the prophet of God and president of the church, whose chief responsibility is to announce revelation from God. And this isn't just, you know, D Todd Christofferson. It's not just the um, elder Bednar or elder Holland or elder Oaks. It's every single one of them, including Elder Dorf. and um, um, I just want to interrupt you for yeah.
0: just a split second. Just a little note here. I oh, wow. We got to at least say that Dwayne Duke uh, for the next five minutes has offered to match up to a hundred bucks. If uh, for donation for donation. So if, if a bunch of people want to give $5 and get up to 50 bucks, he will match that in the next five minutes going up to a hundred dollars. So just a little note, but please continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to make sure that people are aware of that.
1: No, no. That's the the best kind of interruption. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, everybody. We appreciate the support. So really, that's it. That was the parallax view that was looking at the same um, data sets. But instead of looking at it as it applies to President Nelson or to the members of the church, all of a sudden I looked at it from the point of view of the apostles from this angle, right? And I went, oh, my gosh. Well, my first thought was these guys have no integrity.
0: Yeah. And, and somebody else, the, the person who wrote me and sent me the apostolic charge so I could uh, mention that tonight, this was his comment. And, and I think there's some conjecture here, or you know, he's alleging something, but I think it's worth considering. He says, are apostles required to sign over to the church all of their investments, retirement, pensions, annuities, wealth of every form? That would be consistent with covenants undertaken in the temple. By the way, as a bishop, I was taught from above me, That my counselors, when I made a decision, um, the stake presidency and people above them taught our bishopric that when uh, my two counselors and I uh, had conversations about things, when I made a decision that they didn't agree with, They were told that they were to leave that room acting as if it was their decision. So this apostolic charge makes sense in terms of what kinds of things we were taught at the local level. And as this person's pointing out, this idea of signing everything over to the church, that would be consistent with the covenants undertaken in the temple. He said, I seriously wonder if every apostle is required as part of his admission to the 12 to burn down every financial bridge of retreat from the quorum of the twelve why would at least, why would not at least one wife of these men have had enough by now? Why would not at least one mother, grandmother, aunt, uh, have resigned or stood up in support of a loved one harmed by the apostolic actions and inaction? Almost every family you have to imagine in the Quorum of the Twelve and in the First Presidency at that time had to have been affected by the, uh, November 2015 policy. We've already talked about Tom Christofferson. I'm told that Elder Oaks has uh, immediate family members who are uh, in the LGBT community. Um, I I think we have to at least mention there's got to be some reason that over the course of 200 years, it is a deep struggle to find these men disagreeing when all the way back with um, Orson Pratt in the quorum of the 12 in the argument of seniority and how Orson was constantly going up against Brigham on the Adam God doctrine as well as other teachings that Brigham found a way to shut him out and shut him up You're muted. You're you're muted.
1: I'm sorry. No so uh, yeah, it's interesting uh, speculation. I don't know the answer to that. There may be something going on behind there other than just loyalty. But you know, like I like I said, the first thing that hit me was these men have no integrity. None of these apostles have any integrity. Yeah. And I, I asked, started. By the
0: way, I asked Elder Holland directly how much money he made before the pay stuff came out. Um, I asked Elder Holland directly how much money he made, and his answer to me was, "I wish I could tell you."
1: I wish I could tell you.
0: I wish I could. T- I wish I could tell you. Yeah.
1: Well, either he's just saying that, or there's some kind of p- part of the apostolic charge that they can't talk about the money. Yeah. Because they certainly haven't talked about that, other than Gordon B. Hinckley saying it's a modest stipend.
2: Yeah, it's a it's modest almost-
1: six fig- it's, it's a modest six figure base pay stipend, yeah. as it turned out. But yeah, so I said they have no integrity, but then I thought about that and I said, no, wait a second. That's too harsh. That's too broad. These 15 men at the top of this church do have integrity. But their integrity is for each other. Their integrity is toward the system. Their integrity is not for the members of the church. Their integrity is not for Jesus Christ, whose apostles they claim to be. Their integrity is not to the truth. Their integrity is to this system, which could be very well called a good old boy club. And so they're going to back each other at the expense of putting a person as the prophet who they know will make false claims about having received revelation. So they're doing that to Jesus, who I'm I'm presuming they believe in and believe actually does give revelation from time to time, just not this time. And they're doing it at the expense of the members who depend upon this president to tell them what God wants them to do. And even the entire world, because the president of the church claims to be the prophet of the entire world. All of that comes second to their integrity. If I can use that word or their loyalty to the 15, to that system. And this was very, very disappointing to me, which is why I titled this podcast. Will the real apostle please stand up. And as far as I can tell, they're all still sitting.
0: Not a single one. Has enough integrity to run counter to that apostolic charge, right? And and that and that whole thing, the apostolic charge, it wasn't given by Joseph Smith. It didn't happen in the very first years of the church. Sure as hell, Peter, James, and John, and and uh, Matthew, and all those guys, they didn't get together and do that. Um, this was a modern creation in order to protect the people who do shitty behavior among those fifteen that compels all 15 to go along with it.
1: Yes, it was decided that it was important to give the membership of the church the appearance that in any decision, all 15 were united.
0: Yeah. Yep. That's it. Let's give off the appearance that we're united. And why why can't we have disagreement? Well, it's because Orson Pratt and Brigham Young, Brigham Young and the early church, the leaders, for whatever reason, saw that as divisive. And so they put a they put a stop to it and they created the fix. They now have a workaround. Right.
1: And by the way, for any church history buffs out there. Yes, there was an apostolic charge given to the original group of 12 apostles back in 1835 by Oliver Calgary. No, that that doesn't appear to have been it. Instead, the apostolic charges for them, because they were supposed to be special witnesses of Jesus Christ to continue to live a life seeking after this vision of Jesus Christ until they had received it. And now they're not even even there. What? I
0: mean, not even that. Now they're just special witnesses for the name of Jesus Christ.
1: Right. Well, apparently none of the original 12 ever got to that point either, but that was the original apostolic charge, I think.
0: We ought to do an episode on that. That's a good story too.
1: Okay. Just the idea that, that that apostolic charge was given. They were supposed
0: to go chase down a visionary experience with Jesus himself. They'd ended up not getting it, most of them, and so they ended up having to create a new apostolic charge.
1: Yeah, well, I think it was Brigham Young who out in Utah had made the comment that nobody that he knew had ever seen Jesus.
0: <laughs> Including him, right? Right, I mean, right. He was just a Yankee guesser, if I remember right.
1: Yes, that was one of the things he characterized himself as being.
0: Yeah. Well, I I, I loved it. This was fun to read your outline, to get prepared for it, to go read the, or listen to these sound bites. Um, at the end of the day, these guys are pretending – To be apostles. And they get to carry that label because they've given it to themselves. And as you and I both know, and folks, if you want to go listen, I think it's some of the best work RFM has done and he's done a lot of great stuff, but it's the apostolic coup d'etat, which I don't remember the episode numbers, but I think it's a two or three part series. And in those two or three parts, RFM walks you through every step along the way of how after Joseph and Hiram die, how the first presidency is reorganized, how Brigham Young takes over leadership of the church, how he's not the rightful steward, according to the early history, that the patriarch, that the uh, Nauvoo uh, uh, High Council, or the high high stake uh, leadership. Yeah, and there was a balance of power that Brigham Young just said the hell with this and took over the church. And uh, from that day forward... um, and I guess we can go back further than that. But from that day forward, uh, these men have done everything they could to isolate themselves and protect themselves from criticism.
1: Right. You remind me about that. It's been a while since I listened to that, but yeah, that was a wonderful time. And I learned a lot making and researching for that podcast, especially from D Michael Quinn rest his soul, where I looked into his uh, Mormon, was it extensions of power, Mormon hierarchy, extensions of power. Um, uh wonderful wonderful book and i learned so much there but the nutshell is is that it answers the question why is it that in a church modeled on the new testament that had 12 apostles why is it that the lds church today has 15 apostles
0: yeah because the other guys were all kicked out uh William Marx was chased away by the whistling whittlers and threatened his life by Brigham Young. And the apostle, that was the group that took leadership and they protected themselves forevermore.
1: Oh, right, right. And the final uh, coup de grace was with the state, with the church patriarch, who in Joseph Smith's day, if you actually look at the revelations and study the history, the church patriarch, who was, of course, originally Joseph Smith's dad, and then when his dad died in Nauvoo because of the malaria, then Hiram, the older brother, to Joseph ends up becoming the church patriarch, according to the revelations at a minimum, the church patriarch was equal to the prophet, to the president of the church. And it's arguable that he was actually above him in power and authority. And so after the apostles take over the first presidency, which is why there's 15 of them now, (laughs) instead of 12, then in the 1970s, when I joined the church in 1978, um, who was it? Who was the church patriarch? Oh, what is the uh, name? Uh, it's obviously uh, Smith, Elder yeah. G. Yeah, yeah, Elder G. Smith, because he has to be a direct descendant. Through and he Hiram. carried the
0: box around. Remember, he carried the box around with uh, with that the Joseph and uh, that the gold plates were supposed to be stored in. It wouldn't close all the way on the plates, and a new box had to be made or something. And oh he yeah, he had the box had, around, and he had the martyrdom clothes with blood and bullet holes, and he went around from fireside to fireside because he was the patriarch emeritus. Because he no longer was the patriarch because the church worried at some future point, if they continued their shitty behavior, that he could raise a voice and be equal in authority to them. And they just didn't want the hassle. So they just got rid of the general patriarch altogether.
1: Yes, that's what they did. So they put they put him on emeritus status. They didn't call anybody else because they'd already maneuvered themselves into the position of being the people who call the patriarch. Right. Hmm. They sucked all the power and authority out of the position. Oh, I have more minutes that?
0: matching donations. Yeah. Dr. Moore has offered to match more donations for the next five minutes. Says there's only $25 so far. So only
1: smokes donate people. we got matching yeah, donations please. out there
0: right to the right to the right of the screen next to RFM. You can uh, click donate right over there and throw a few bucks our way. Imagine, you know, the time that RFM has put into this one, um, this conversation tonight. And uh, he does that with all of his work. And I think just throwing a few dollars our way would be much appreciated.
1: Well, I think I've said all I have to say on this subject, I just wanted to uh, go over it tonight because it hit me so strong 10 days ago when I was talking Mm -hmm. on the phone that the apostles, shame on you, really shame on you guys, because you had a position where you could have made the right choice, you knew what the right choice was, but you didn't do it. You just went along to get along.
0: And, and I'll add, we'll, we'll add a little more onto this last week, not necessarily what you covered tonight, but your, your main thrust is the integrity of the Quorum of the Twelve and the other members of the First Presidency, for that matter, who, as you point out, are all apostles. Um, we'll go into some detail next week and try to share what happened in three different events. One is Quentin Cook's involvement with uh, some land in a hospital. Uh, Thomas Monson's son, Thomas Monson, in some sexual allegations and his eventual working with Curtin uh, Curtin and McConkie. And the third story will be Elder Ballard and his dad giving free cars, I believe, to the uh, general authorities of the church. And then when he got in a pinch later in his life being bailed out by the church itself, even though the church by its action afterward didn't use the thing it bought from him and uh, ended up. I don't. I think they still own it today, and, and are not using it. Uh, and so we'll fill in all the details of that next week. But at the end of the day, these guys may not be who who most in the church think they are. They may be something other than what they claim and what most believe them to be.
1: Right. And if people are like me, the time comes when you start realizing that maybe these uh, gentlemen and the the apostles aren't really receiving revelation from God and they're not really inspired. They're not really having, you know, chicken steak with gravy on the fourth floor of the Salt Lake temple with Jesus every Thursday for lunch. But then you sort of, I'll just speak for myself. Okay. So I segue out of that, but I limp along thinking, okay, well, they may not be inspired, but they're good men who are doing the best they can to do the job that they've been given to do. And that can last for a certain while when all of a sudden you run up into situations like this where you're going, I'm not even sure that that's true.
4: It's wrong to criticize leaders of the church,
0: even if the criticism is true. Yeah. So you ready to take up a couple of phone calls?
1: Absolutely.
0: All right, let me, uh, let me pull up the, the right screen here. Okay, folks, you know the number Uh, 435-200-3478, or 435-200-FIST. Oh, yeah. And we've got one right now, so we'll plug this one in. Caller, you are on the air. If you don't mind turning your sound down on your computer and uh, tell us your name and tell us what you've got for us tonight.
5: Hello, boys. How are you? sister evans one of your four female listeners i
0: love it i love it we had three now we've got four i love this sister evans <laughs> t- tell us <laughs> oh, what's no, on your no. mind i've
5: been here the whole time
0: no no i wasn't talking about you i was talking about the other person who joined after you three.
5: Oh. <laughs> oh. so i just wanted to um quickly qu- quote something from the church of jesus christ website on their gospel topics um honesty it's their concluding paragraph and i'm curious which one of the apostles signed off for this getting posted. Um, I'll just quickly read it to you. It says, being honest often requires courage and sacrifice, especially when others try to persuade us to justify dishonest behavior. If we find ourselves in such a situation, we can remember that the lasting peace that comes from being honest is more valuable than the momentary relief Of following the crowd
0: you talk sister Evans about speaking out of one side of your mouth and then the other right talking out both sides that certainly sounds like it doesn't it
5: oh it sure does and here I was spending 36 years of my life believing that I was following a group of men that lived by these exact principles that were beat into my head by my parents by my congregation by even my teachers at school who I knew came to church with me. And yet here they are just being, you know, who they are. So thank you. I love you both. And I'm so grateful for the time that you put in for us each week.
0: Yeah. You, when you talk about what you believed and thought these, uh, these men were, you, me, RFM and millions of others, uh, lots of people are waking up to the fact that these guys uh, aren't what they claim to be. And, and I'm, I'm grateful to kind of see that happen, but thank you for the call.
1: Yeah. It's like Billy Joel said, Hi. Oh, sorry. Bye sister Evans. Thanks for calling. Uh, she can't hear me when she's on. So I try and stay quiet while she's talking like Billy Joel says, honesty is such That's a lonely word, said. Bill. Everyone is so untrue. This is Roger. <laughs> Roger. <laughs> Roger sounds happy tonight. Yeah,
0: so I, I, yeah, so Roger, I, I, go ahead, RFM, finish your point. I didn't mean to have it on the sound. That was it. That was I was
1: just doing the Billy Joel stick. You okay, know, honesty, gotcha. honesty is such a lonely word. Right. Everyone is so One untrue. Second, Roger. Okay, Roger, you go ahead. All Roger,
0: right. Roger is our most popular caller. Roger, you and I just had a conversation a few days ago uh, talking. Um, what do you think about the episode tonight, my friend?
6: Uh, what I'm thinking about, or well, the thing that bothers me the absolute most about the apostolic charge is what happened to Hubie Brown. I was in the uh, a mission uh, home in Salt Lake City, uh, the winter of 1969, and uh, Hubie Brown was trying to get the blacks to get the priesthood. He had it all set up for David O. McKay uh, to give a black man the priesthood, and it, that black man came to the Hotel Utah and spoke to all of us missionaries. Every group that went through the uh, uh, mission home there in salt lake and we went to the hotel utah for dinner he talked to us and tell us about blacks and the priesthood and how how grateful he was and Hubie brown had it all set up that um, david o mckay was going to ordain him to be uh, to the priesthood and uh, it was all set up they had an announcement for the new york times and everything and then right at the last minute, uh, some of the other uh, brethren came back and squashed the whole thing. And uh, then what what hurt the most was Hubie Brown was forced to go out in front of the public along with N.L. Tanner because David O. McKay was sick and sign the declaration of 1969 about blacks in the priesthood. And uh, it, he did it with tears rolling down his cheeks because he was so against it. He was so against it. He worked for years and years and years, yet he took that apostolic charge, and uh, he had to support the rest of the 12, even though he was completely against it.
0: Yeah, Roger, that wasn't the only thing. Also, uh, Hubie Brown suggested, and by the way, he volunteered to be the first one. He suggested that the apostles be given emeritus status at the age of 70 and be allowed to just go off into the sunset and get away from this and go enjoy their lives and their grandchildren, perhaps their great-grandchildren. But they also turned him down on that one as well.
6: But one more thing I want to add about um, the uh, office of patriarch to the, pres- to the church, which was considered slightly above the president of the church, was that uh, one of the reasons why they got rid of, uh, of the pre- that office was because of Joseph Fielding Smith, the patriarch, seer, and revelator and patriarch to the church, who was gay and uh, was forced into exile into Hawaii and and they were and it was such an embarrassment to the church that they that was another reason why they decided to get rid of that office is because the, that office had embarrassed the church so much by having a gay uh, prophet.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I want to just clarify for you, Roger, Joseph uh, Fielding Smith, the patriarch. Was, patriarch. A, yep, was a very not different person than Joseph Fielding Smith, the apostle, former church historian. But you're right That's about right. the details of the story.
3: That's
6: right. He was the patriarch, not the, uh, the apostle became the prophet of the church, but he was the patriarch to yeah. the church.
0: Yeah, and I can't remember who wrote the book that details all of that, but I think it might have been Gary Bajera or something. But uh, but there's a book out there that talks about all of the patriarchs uh, and finishes up with Eldred G. Smith as the final one. Thank you, Roger. You're welcome. Have a great day.
1: This thing that Roger talks about, Bill, is very, very interesting, only because apparently it was replicated with uh, President Monson toward the end of his time as president. And the problem with having presidents of the church who don't uh, stop being presidents until they die. Is that they live a long time and frequently they end up being mentally incapacitated in the last years of their lives, which means that the president of the church, the prophet of God, is mentally compromised during the last few years. This was a case with David O. McKay, who passed away in 1970. I think it was January of 1970. So in the last several years of his life, I mean, he's in his 90s. He is um, he's compromised mentally. To the point that anybody who wants to get in there and see him from the quorum of the 12 to get him to do something, they're all angling to try and get him in a locked room to get him in private so they can try and get him to sign off on their favorite thing. And Hubie Brown, of course, we, we tend to lionize, of course, and say, yeah, he was trying to get um, David O. McKay to sign off on blacks getting the priesthood. Yeah, we, we understand that. And we tend to be more in favor of that than Ezra Taft Benson, who was doing the same thing, lobbying David O. McKay to try and get his picture, David O. McKay's picture on the cover of the magazine of the, um, the John Birch Society, and actually lobbying David O. McKay to get the president of the John Birch Society to speak in general conference. And he had made inroads in that and almost got him done, except somebody else from the Board of the Twelve finds out what he's up to, and they go to David O. McKay and they put the kibosh on it, right? So this is what happens. When you have an aged and mentally compromised and weak president of the church is that other people who are younger, who have agendas, try and get you to do what it is they want you to do because you have the power and they have the idea. And I think it's very natural and almost certain that what happened with the policy of exclusion in November of 2015 was somebody, you might have the initials um, RMN, I don't know. Is that right, Russell? M. Yeah. R Amen. Uh was doing the same thing with President Monson.
0: Yeah. And and um it should be noted, right? If the patriarch, as lined out in the early history of the church, is equal in authority to the quorum of the twelve, who were only supposed to be in charge, their stewardship was outside of the um stakes. Her- yeah, what well, say that again? Stakes. The stakes of the church, they were out in the mission field. If, if they're equal in authority to the Patriarch, how can they eliminate the Patriarch's position? Like, that'd be like, uh, I don't know. You, you and I being the offensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator for a football team, and I walk up and fire you. I, I don't have power to do that.
1: Yeah, the only way you have power to do it is if I let you.
0: Right. And unfortunately, Eldred G. Smith was soft and nice enough as to go off into the sunset himself without saying a word although the the history there from his son was that uh, he was deeply hurt and uh, saddened by what had happened and the way he was treated. Yeah. Um, our caller now is Doug. Doug, uh, you're on Mormonism Live. Uh, what do you have for us, my friend?
4: Oh, just congratulations again. It's, it's another fantastic program. Very well done by you guys. That's to be expected at this point. But I wanted to make a couple of additional observations and and the first is this these 15 men we cannot forget that these 15 men and their predecessors are the chief architects of the shame cycle that has been subjected on our it's been our our youth have been subjected to for generations and the nature of this policy that gives rise to this podcast and the issue at play here was such a despicable policy in Mm. the eyes of a teenage lds youth uh, they would hear this policy explained to them and they would have no option but to conclude i have no place in this ward i have no place in this church if if you're gay, if, I'm, I'm talking about a, a LGBT LDS youth. Mm. Um, if you're growing up with this struggle and this policy as at play, they would have no option but to suppose there's no place for them in the church. There's no place in them in the, in the in in heaven for them, and it it was a despicable policy. And let us not forget lives were lost during this period.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate the phone call my uh, friend. That's a, that's important stuff.
4: Parents buried sons and daughters yeah. during this period. And and these men knew about these losses and if they can't stand up under those circumstances for the right thing, I have no hope that they ever will. Amen.
0: Thank you. Yeah, amen to that. Um yeah. thanks guys thank you uh you could hear his emotion at the end rfm i i think that was very personal to him
1: yeah yeah and i and uh, not to make this about me right but i remember after this policy happened and there's people who are trying to support it you know and say this is from god and everything and i said publicly on multiple forums that i bear testimony to you by the power of the holy ghost that i know that this policy did not come from God. Yeah. And as it turned out, I guess I was right.
0: Yeah. Um, man, sorry, the phone's ran the voicemail will pick up there. But uh, I've talked to numerous people uh, who have lost folks to suicide during that whole thing going on some of those so directly tied to what happened at the time that there's no if ands or buts in my mind, nor the minds of their immediate family, that that was the impetus for it. I've had numerous conversations with Wendy Montgomery, who was one of the early people within Mama Dragons who spent tons of time helping these families who are dealing with this stress. And she was aware of numerous uh, kids and others who had taken their lives. And uh, as that caller points out, if, if these men are unwilling and unable to stand up in those moments, then really not much use in having an apostle, is there?
6: Yeah yeah.
0: Um, let's take uh, let's take one more. Uh, if somebody wants to call, we'll uh, we'll hang on here another moment or two and we'll take one more phone call and then we'll call tonight.
1: Hopefully um, a lady listener can get through.
0: Yeah, we'd love that. And uh, I just, while while the caller was talking, I was writing down a piece of paper. People probably heard a little bit of that noise. I wrote down that I'm tomorrow morning. Uh, I will put out the uh, coup d'état episode on YouTube, and I'll put out the episode you and I did, where we gave the history of the Family Proclamation, which I think also ties into some of this. Right. Um, and you and I did a, a long episode where we went through all that history. And uh, talked about what brought that to be. And I think that also will add uh, some some context to what what's going on here.
1: Um, right. Just so you know, Bill, because I know you've been doing a lot of this YouTube stuff. Yeah. The two Apostolic Coup d'etat episodes are up on YouTube.
0: They're already there. Good. Yes. So folks can go check those out. I, I'm, I'm so surprised at the number of people who know who you are. They know who I am. We're putting these episodes on YouTube. And they are, for the first time, seeing some of this material. It's it's almost like people catch a piece here of us or a piece there of us. And by putting it in a different venue, we opened ourselves up to our episodes, our work, being listened to by countless people who know us but never heard those episodes. I, right. I'm just quite surprised by that.
1: Yeah, my problem is taking all that research for like three-hour episodes and condensing them into 59 seconds for TikTok.
0: Yeah, no, <laughs> that's impossible. I sit, uh, oh, again, we'll wait a few minutes for a call to come in and see if one does, but I'll sit there and do redos for 30 times. It takes me 30 minutes or so uh, to get one, t- one one minute TikTok out. Uh, I had to do so many practices of the, uh, of the Lucy Walker story to actually get it down in a minute. Uh, caller, you are the final caller tonight for Mormonism Live. Um, you are on with RFM, who just put a beautiful episode together. Um, and uh, myself, Bill Real, What is on your mind tonight regarding uh, regarding the episode that we just uh, conversated about?
7: Um, God, is that me?
0: It's you. You're on. Tell <laughs> us your name, and I then can't
7: believe I got on. That's yeah, fabulous.
0: Well, uh... RFM just prayed for a female caller, and his prayers were answered. And so, tell us your Wait, name, no, and you then
7: said female. I was like, I I, I qualify. I qualify. <laughs>
0: yeah, your your name, caller. You
7: know, I. Uh, oh, I'm Becca.
0: Becca, Becca, I good to have you on.
7: Say, uh, thank you. I just wanted to say thank you so much for, you know, all the, I mean, just immense, immense amount of work that you guys put into this. I just, I, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one that just is so appreciative of this. And the caller that just spoke in front of me, um, I have a little bit of emotion right now just because he just really touched my heart. The whole, um, when they came out with the, uh, you know, the the issues with the gay, gay children p- being, um, you know, not being able to be baptized yeah. and just very anti-LGBT friendly, um, I guess, what they called doctrine or whatever. Um, I, I can't even think of the word. I'm just so, I'm so emotional. Bill? And I had um, a, my oldest teenager who... Had who came out to us um, right around that time, and it was just such a it was such an, a really difficult time to go through with uh, with that particular kid. And I remember just sitting on the floor in a fetal position after she came out to us, telling us, t- you know, telling us that she was she thought she might be gay. And I was just I said, why why does she have to be gay? Why doesn't she just kill herself and and just be done with it so she doesn't have to have this struggle? And so to have to know that I was in such, you know, and I know I'm not the only one, especially I know, I know I'm not the only mom who's had to go through this, who's been completely straight up all the way into church, you know, major lineage to, you know, you know, major players in the church and to, to just be obedient and obedient, obedient, and then to have your child say that to you, to wish that they would just be gone so they wouldn't have to have that struggle, it just it breaks my heart that these people who claim to be prophets and people of God would would put that responsibility on us, um, especially I guess in my generation of growing up in the church, to have to feel like we have to pick between our kids and and what we feel is the person who's speaking on behalf of God, and so I just I just want to say thank you I guess for all the work that goes into your programs because it really helps somebody like me clarify in my own head, you know, as a mom, but as somebody who wanted to be a follower of who at the time I thought was God, you know, not sure I'm at now, but, you know, at the time, somebody who wanted to really just be somebody who was high quality and you know, in in the eyes of God, you you guys and all your work. And and I've listened to, you You know, when you were separated, you know, when you first started out and now together, it's just, I just want to say thank you for helping somebody like me and, and, you know, others who I know that are out there be able to justify in their own heads and not, and, and to realize that we were so gaslit for so much time and so long that, we're not crazy and we're, we're okay to love our family and love our kids no matter who they are and the people that are around us and to be open and tolerant, even if the person who claims they're the, a prophet of God isn't like that or apostle of God or whatever perhaps you want to be yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's basically all I want to say just a thank you for all your hard work and I, I just really sincerely from the bottom of my heart, I just really appreciate all the all, all that you guys do for people like me in our in our post Mormon, ex Mormon community. So that's Thank all I want to say.
0: Thank you so much. Have a great night.
7: Thank you. Bye.
0: Thank can, you, Becca. Yeah, we can probably close with that. What do you think?
1: Absolutely. It's wrong
4: to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true.